0: Section 15 of Three Essays on Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Three Essays on Religion by John Stuart Mill. Theism. Section 7. Part 4. Revelation. Revelation. The discussion in the preceding pages respecting the evidences of theism has been strictly confined to those which are derived from the light of nature it is a different question what addition has been made to those evidences and to what extent the conditions obtainable from them have been amplified or modified by the establishment of a direct communication with the supreme being it would be beyond the purpose of this essay to take into consideration the positive evidences of the christian or any other belief which claims to be a revelation from heaven but such general considerations as are applicable not to a particular system but to revelation generally may properly find a place here and are indeed necessary to give a sufficient practical bearing to the results of the preceding investigation in the first place then the indications of a creator and of his attributes which we have been able to find in nature though so much slighter and less conclusive even as to his existence than the pious mind would wish to consider them and still more unsatisfactory in the information they afford as to his attributes are yet sufficient to give the supposition of a revelation a standing-point which it would not otherwise have had the alleged revelation is not obliged to build up its case from the foundation it has not to prove the very existence of the being from whom it professes to come. It claims to be a message from a being whose existence, whose power, and to a certain extent whose wisdom and goodness are if not proved, at least indicated with more or less a probability by the phenomena of nature. The sender of the alleged message is not a sheer invention; there are grounds independent of the message itself for belief in his reality grounds which though insufficient for proof are sufficient to take away all antecedent improbability from the supposition that a message may really have been received from him it is moreover much to the purpose to take notice that the very imperfection of the evidences which natural theology can produce of the divine attributes removes some of the chief stumbling blocks to the belief of a revelation since the objections grounded on imperfections in the revelation itself however conclusive against it if it is considered as a record of the acts or an expression of the wisdom of a being of infinite power combined with infinite wisdom and goodness and no reason whatever against it having come from a being such as the course of nature points to whose wisdom is possibly his power certainly limited and whose goodness though real is not likely to have been the only motive which actuated him in the work of creation The argument of butler's analogy is from its own point of view conclusive the christian religion is open to no objections either moral or intellectual which do not apply at least equally to the common theory of deism the morality of the gospels is far higher and better than that which shows itself in the order of nature and what is morally objectionable in the christian theory of the world is objectionable only when taken in conjunction with the doctrine of an omnipotent god and at least as understood by most enlightened christians by no means imports any moral obliquity in a being whose power is supposed to be restricted by real though unknown obstacles which prevented him from fully carrying out his design the grave error of butler was that he shrank from admitting the hypothesis of limited powers and his appeal consequently amounts to this the belief of christians is neither more absurd nor more immoral than the belief of deists who acknowledge an omnipotent creator let us therefore in spite of the absurdity and immorality believe both he ought to have said let us cut down our belief of either to what does not involve absurdity or immorality to what is neither intellectually self-contradictory nor morally perverted to return however to the main subject on the hypothesis of a god who made the world and in making it had regard however that regard may have been limited by other considerations to the happiness of his sentient creatures there is no antecedent improbability in the supposition that his concern for their good would continue and that he might once or oftener give proof of it by communicating to them some knowledge of himself beyond what they were able to make out by their unassisted faculties and some knowledge or precepts useful for guiding them through the difficulties of life neither on the only tenable hypothesis that of limited power is it open to us to object that these helps ought to have been greater or in any way other than they are the only question to be entertained and which we cannot dispense ourselves from entertaining is that of evidence can any evidence suffice to prove a divine revelation and of what nature and what amount must that evidence be Whether the special evidences of Christianity, or of any other alleged revelation, do or do not come up to the mark, is a different question, into which I do not propose directly to enter. The question I intend to consider is, what evidence is required, what general conditions it ought to satisfy, and whether they are such as, according to known constitution of things, can be satisfied. The evidences of revelation are commonly distinguished as external or internal external evidences are the testimony of the senses or of witnesses by the internal evidences are meant the indications which the revelation itself is thought to furnish of its divine origin indications supposed to consist chiefly in the excellence of its precept and its general suitability to the circumstances and needs of human nature the consideration of these internal evidences is very important but their importance is principally negative they may be conclusive grounds for rejecting a revelation but cannot of themselves warrant the acceptance of it as divine if the moral character of the doctrine of an alleged revelation is bad and perverting we ought to reject it from whomsoever it comes for it cannot come from a good and wise being but the excellence of their morality can never entitle us to ascribe them to a supernatural origin for we cannot have conclusive reason for believing that the human faculties were incompetent to find out moral doctrines of which the human faculties can perceive and recognize the excellence. A revelation, therefore, cannot be proved divine unless by external evidence, that is, by the exhibition of supernatural facts, and we have to consider whether it is possible to prove supernatural facts, and if it is, what evidence is required to prove them. This question has only, so far as I know, been seriously raised on the skeptical side by Hume it is the question involved in his famous argument against miracles an argument which goes down to the depths of the subject but the exact scope and effect of which perhaps not conceived with perfect correctness by that great thinker himself have in general been utterly misconceived by those who have attempted to answer him dr campbell for example one of the acutest of his antagonists has thought himself obliged in order to support the credibility of miracles to lay down doctrines which virtually go the length of maintaining that antecedent improbability is never a sufficient ground for refusing credence to a statement if it is well attested dr campbell's fallacy lay in overlooking a double meaning of the word improbability as i have pointed out in my logic and still earlier in an editorial note to bentham's treatise on evidence taking the question from the very beginning it is evidently impossible to maintain that if a supernatural fact really occurs proof of its occurrence cannot be accessible to the human faculties. The evidence of our senses could prove this, as it can prove other things. To put the most extreme case, suppose that I actually saw and heard a being, either of the human form or of some form previously unknown to me, commanding a world to exist, and a new world actually starting into existence, and commencing a movement through space at his command there can be no doubt that this evidence would convert the creation of worlds from a speculation into a fact of experience it may be said i could not know that so singular an appearance was anything more than a hallucination of my senses true but the same doubt exists at first respecting every unsuspected and surprising fact which comes to light in our physical researches that our senses have been deceived is a possibility which has to be met and dealt with and we do deal with it by several means if we repeat the experiment and again with the same result if at the time of the observation the impressions of our senses are in all other respects the same as usual rendering the supposition of their being morbidly affected in this one particular extremely improbable above all if other people's senses confirm the testimony of our own we conclude with reason that we may trust our senses indeed our senses are all that we have to trust to we depend on them for the ultimate premise even of our reasoning there is no other appeal against their decision than an appeal from the senses without precautions to the senses with all due precautions when the evidence on which an opinion rests is equal to that upon which the whole conduct and safety of our lives is founded we need ask no further objections which apply equally to all evidence are valid against none they only prove abstract fallibility but the evidence of miracles at least to protestant christians is not in our own day of this cogent description it is not the evidence of our senses but of witnesses and even this not at first hand but resting on the attestation of books and traditions and even in the case of the original eye-witnesses the supernatural facts asserted on their alleged testimony are not of the transcendent character supposed in our example about the nature of which or the impossibility of their having had a natural origin, there could be little room for doubt. On the contrary, the recorded miracles are, in the first place, generally such as would have been extremely difficult to verify as matters of fact, and in the next place are hardly ever beyond the possibility of having been brought about by human means, or by the spontaneous agencies of nature. It is to cases of this kind that Hume's argument against the credibility of miracles was meant to apply. His argument is, The evidence of miracles consists of testimony the grounds of our reliance on testimony is our experience that certain conditions being supposed testimony is generally veracious but the same experience tells us that even under the best conditions testimony is frequently either intentionally or unintentionally false when therefore the fact to which testimony is produced is one the happening of which would be more at variance with experience than the falsehood of testimony we ought not to believe it and this rule all prudent persons observe in the conduct of life those who do not are sure to suffer for their credulity now a miracle the argument goes on to say is in the highest possible degree contradictory to experience for if it were not contradictory to experience it would not be a miracle the very reason for it being regarded as a miracle is that it is a breach of a law of nature that is of an otherwise invariable and inviolable uniformity in the succession of natural events there is therefore the very strongest reason for disbelieving it that experience can give for disbelieving anything but the mendacity or error of witnesses even though numerous and of fair character is quite within the bounds of even common experience that supposition therefore ought to be preferred there are two apparently weak points in this argument one is that the evidence of experience to which an appeal is made is only negative evidence which is not so conclusive as positive since facts of which there had been no previous experience are often discovered and proved by positive experience to be true the other seemingly vulnerable point is this the argument has the appearance of assuming that the testimony of experience against miracles is undeviating and indubitable as it would be if the whole question was about the probability of future miracles, none having taken place in the past. Whereas, the very thing asserted on the other side is that there have been miracles, and that the testimony of experience is not wholly on the negative side. All the evidence alleged in favour of any miracle ought to be reckoned as counter-evidence in refutation of the ground on which it is asserted that miracles ought to be disbelieved the question can only be stated fairly as depending on a balance of evidence a certain amount of positive evidence in favour of miracles and a negative presumption for the general course of human experience against them in order to support the argument under this double correction it has to be shown that the negative presumption against a miracle is very much stronger than that against a merely new and surprising fact this however is evidently not the case a new physical discovery even if it consists in the defeating of a well-established law of nature is but the discovery of another law previously unknown there is nothing in this but what is familiar to our experience we were aware that we did not know all the laws of nature and we were aware that one such law is liable to be counteracted by others the new phenomenon when brought to light is found still to depend on law it is always exactly reproduced when the same circumstances are repeated its occurrence therefore is within the limits of variation in experience which experience itself discloses but a miracle in the very fact of being a miracle declares itself to be a supersession not of one natural law by another but of the law which includes all others which experience shows to be universal for all phenomena viz., that they depend on some law that they are always the same when there are the same phenomenal antecedents and neither take place in the absence of their phenomenal causes nor ever fail to take place when the phenomenal conditions are all present it is evident that this argument against belief in miracles had very little to rest upon until a comparatively modern stage in the progress of science a few generations ago the universal dependence of phenomena on invisible laws was not only not recognized by mankind in general but could not be regarded by the instructed as a scientifically established truth there were many phenomena which seemed quite irregular in their course without dependence on any known antecedents and though no doubt a certain regularity in the occurrence of the most familiar phenomena must always have been recognized yet even in these the exceptions which were constantly occurring had not by an investigation and generalization of the circumstances of their occurrence been reconciled with the general rule the heavenly bodies were, from of old, the most conspicuous type of regular and unvarying order. Yet even among them comets were a phenomenon apparently originating without any law, and eclipses, one which seemed to take place in violation of law. Accordingly, both comets and eclipses long continued to be regarded as of miraculous nature, intended as signs and omens of human fortunes. It would have been impossible in those days to prove to any one that this supposition was antecedently improbable it seemed more comfortable to appearances than the hypothesis of an unknown law now however when in the progress of science all phenomena have been shown by indisputable evidence to be amenable to law and even in the cases in which those laws have not yet been exactly ascertained delay in ascertaining them is fully accounted for by the special difficulties of the subject the defenders of miracles have adapted their argument to this altered state of things by maintaining that a miracle need not necessarily be a violation of law it may they say take place in fulfilment of a more recondite law to us unknown if by this it is only meant that the divine being in the exercise of his power of interfering within suspending his own laws guides himself by some general principle or rule of action this of course cannot be disproved and is in itself the most probable supposition But if the argument means that a miracle may be the fulfilment of a law, in the same sense in which the ordinary events of nature are fulfilment of laws, it seems to indicate an imperfect conception of what is meant by a law, and of what constitutes a miracle. When we say that an ordinary physical fact always takes place according to some invariable law, we mean that it is connected by uniform sequence or coexistence with some definite set of physical antecedents. That whenever that set is exactly reproduced, the same phenomenon will take place, unless counteracted by the similar laws of some other physical antecedents, and that whenever it does take place, it would always be found that its special set of antecedents, or one of its sets, if it has more than one, has pre-existed. Now, an event which takes place in this manner is not a miracle. To make it a miracle, it must be produced by a direct violation, without the use of means or at least of any means which if simply repeated will produce it to constitute a miracle a phenomenon must take place without having been preceded by any antecedent phenomenal conditions sufficient again to reproduce it or a phenomenon for the production of which the antecedent conditions existed must be arrested or prevented without the intervention of any phenomenal antecedents which would arrest or prevent it in a future case the test of a miracle is was there present in the case such external conditions such second causes we may call them that whenever these conditions or causes reappear the event will be reproduced if there were it is not a miracle if there were not it is a miracle but it is not according to law it is an event produced without or in spite of law it will perhaps be said that a miracle does not necessarily exclude the intervention of second causes if it were the will of god to raise a thunderstorm by miracle he might do it by means of wind and clouds undoubtedly but the wind and clouds were either sufficient when produced to excite the thunderstorm without other divine assistance or they were not if they were not the storm is not a fulfilment of law but a violation of it if they were sufficient there is a miracle but it is not the storm it is the production of the winds and the clouds or whatever link in the chain of causation it was at which the influence of physical antecedents was dispensed with if that influence was never dispensed with but the event called miraculous was produced by natural means and those again by others and so on from the beginning of things if the event is no otherwise the act of god than in having been foreseen and ordained by him as the consequence of the forces put in action at the creation then there is no miracle at all nor anything different from the ordinary working of god's providence for another example, a person professing to be divinely commissioned cures a sick person by some apparently insignificant external application. Would this application, administered by a person not specially commissioned from above, have effected the cure? If so, there is no miracle. If not, there is a miracle, but there is a violation of law. End of Theism, Section 7 Recording by Sunny Shield, Doha, State of Qatar, June 2011